Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. My sermon text this evening is from Paul's epistle to the second epistle to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. I'm going to read the first, uh, uh, the first nine verses to give you the fuller context here, but our focus will be on uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Let us hear God's holy word beginning at verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. The title of my sermon this evening is Christ's Poverty, Our Riches. And you'll see a number of words that uh, you can be listening for uh, in my sermon tonight, if that helps you follow along. The words riches, poverty, Lord, grace, incarnation, and humiliation. Well, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, in our passage for this Lord's Day evening, the Apostle Paul is urging the Corinthian church to complete its collection to benefit the impoverished Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Paul uses the generous example of the less affluent Macedonian churches to spur on the more well-to-do Corinthians to give generously to aid their Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul ascribes the generosity of the Macedonian Christians to the grace of God. If you look at verse 1 and 2, Paul writes, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you what? The grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the eager generosity of the Macedonian believers was the result of God's grace at work in their hearts and in their congregation. It was a response of gratitude to God for his gift of salvation through Jesus. Well, in our text for this evening, 
Paul reminds the Corinthians of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ as an incentive for them, uh, like the Macedonians, to demonstrate the grace of generous giving towards the needs of their needy brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord was a grace that moved him to exchange the riches of heavenly glory for the poverty of an earthly existence so that he might lift us up from the spiritual poverty of our sin to the spiritual riches of eternal salvation. Friends, during this Christmas season, as we remember and celebrate the incarnation and humble birth of our Lord, this is a very appropriate passage from God's word for us to ponder as we turn our thoughts once again to Christ, our newborn King. And as we dive into our uh, verse for this evening, consider, first of all, the riches of our Lord Jesus Christ. The riches of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. Now, some of you might be thinking, maybe uh, some of you children might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Jesus wasn't rich, was he? He wasn't born in a king's castle. He was born in, as our uh, confessional standards put it, he was born in circumstances of more than ordinary abasement and humiliation. But Jesus was, uh, Jesus was poor. He became poor in the sense of leaving his heavenly glory to take upon himself an earthly existence. And before that, he was rich in terms of spiritual and heavenly glories. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But let's go through this verse. Paul says in verse 9, at the beginning of verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying to them, I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. Oftentimes uh, when... You come to church and you hear a sermon, you, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've been in the Lord for many years and you're familiar with sound doctrine, you're familiar with the scriptures, you'll often hear things that you already know. And you might think, well, why bother to come to church just to hear what I already know? Or, Pastor, you're not telling me anything new. But the scriptures often, uh, often encourage us and spur us on in our faith by reminding us of that which we already know. Because even though we know these things, we need to know them experientially. We need to work them out and live out the implications of these truths in our hearts and lives. And that's, what Paul, that's why Paul is bringing to the attention of these Corinthian believers. And the Corinthians were very gifted in terms of spiritual gifts and, uh, and in terms of uh, gifted uh, teachers in their midst and so forth. But he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. They needed to be reminded of what they know already, that they might be inspired to to complete what they had promised with respect to uh, giving generously to their needy brothers and sisters, their needy Jewish brothers and sisters. For you know, that implies they'd already been taught the gospel. They knew the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is the gospel about? Well, you know the grace of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, the apostle of grace, uh, reminding the Corinthians of the grace they had known, the grace they had already received. Again, as I mentioned uh, this morning in this morning's sermon, uh, 
the law, which is good and holy and righteous and which we delight in as God's people, the law reveals God's righteousness and justice. The gospel, on the other hand, reveals God's grace and mercy. Law and gospel are not opposed to each other. Uh, They complement each other. They work together in God's plan and purposes. But here he is focusing on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In particular, that grace that moved him, being sent by the Father, to take upon himself our humanity, that he might lift us up from the spiritual poverty of our sin into newness of life. And notice he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we need to pause there. We need to ask ourselves, why doesn't Paul just say, for you know the grace of Christ, or you know the grace of our Lord, or you know the grace of Jesus, or even you know the grace of Jesus Christ? Why does he say, our Lord Jesus Christ? That's our Lord's full name. It reminds us of Christ's divinity, the term Lord. He is God, he is Lord, he is sovereign, he is master, he is king. Jesus, Yeshua, or Jesus in the Greek, the Lord is salvation. And then Christ, anointed one, Messiah. Why does Paul uh, here, in appealing to the Corinthian believers, use our Lord's full name and title? Well, uh, our Lord's full name and title are used by Paul for solemn emphasis, as Norman Hillier points out in his commentary. This is for solemn emphasis. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what was that grace? How was that grace manifested? Paul goes on to say that though he was rich, again, children, it's not talking about Jesus being materially rich or wealthy. This describes Christ in his pre-existent pre-incarnate state of divine glory and blessedness. This is describing uh, the richness, the spiritual and riches and divine majesty of our Lord that he shared with the Father and the Holy Spirit prior to his incarnation. It does not have in view earthly riches or material prosperity, but rather eternal divine glory. Again, what did the riches of Christ include? Well, first of all, as I mentioned, his pre-incarnate divine glory, his eternal, perfect face-to-face communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and his divine privileges and prerogatives. So we see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But as we move on in our consideration of this passage, take to heart next, beloved, the poverty our Lord embraced in his incarnation and estate of humiliation. Let's take to heart the poverty that our Lord embraced in his incarnation and the state of humiliation. Why did Jesus embrace the, our poverty uh, in earthly existence, the poverty of an earthly existence? Well, Paul says here, yet for your sake. For your sake, believer. Think of it. The eternal Son of God voluntarily took to himself a human body and soul and allowed himself to be born in humble circumstances for you and for me, dear brother and sister in Christ. What amazing grace indeed. We are not forgotten by the Lord. The Lord has remembered us. The Lord has come for us. 
the Lord will guide us all the way home because Christ, our Savior, has been born, has lived for us, has died for us, has risen for us, has ascended for us, intercedes for us at the Father's right hand, and is coming for us at the end of this age. Again, what amazing grace indeed. And it says, he became poor. Now, what does that mean? Elsewhere, Paul talks about our Lord's, uh, our Lord's emptying of himself. In what sense did Jesus empty himself of, this, of the riches of divine glory? Does that mean that when Jesus be, was born, that he stopped being God, that he emptied himself of his divinity? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. It means that he, after all, God cannot stop being God. God, by definition, is eternal. He is the necessary being. Our sovereign triune God cannot stop being God. But nevertheless, he emptied himself of certain of his divine privileges and prerogatives and of the divine glory that he might clothe himself in our humanity to redeem us from our sins. And so his poverty involved more than just a, just a lack of material wealth, although Jesus uh, was not born into a wealthy family as such. But nevertheless, he was born uh, in order to become poor by adding to his divine nature a truly human nature and being born in circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. Again, these are probably uh, familiar scripture passages, but let's recall what the Apostle uh, John says of our Lord Jesus in his prologue in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, that's Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Christ, the eternal Word, the Son of the Father, was eternally present with, face-to-face with God. And the Word was God. This asserts our Lord's full divinity, full deity. But then skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh. He didn't stop being the word. He didn't stop being the divine logos. But he became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or we think of what Paul, as I've already alluded to, what Paul says elsewhere in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where he's urging the Philippian believers to, to have a Christ-like attitude one toward another, and the incentive for that attitude is the, uh, the example of Christ himself. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, uh, there's a few places in the New Testament that are clearer in asserting the full deity of Christ, although he existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Again, this is not saying that he emptied himself of his divinity, but that he took the form of a bondservant by taking to himself our humanity, yet without sin. For this reason, verse 9 For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our catechism uh, talks uh, 
gives us wonderful instruction about this in a shorter catechism question and answers 22 and 27. If you'd like to follow along, you're welcome to. If you turn to page uh, 969 in the back of your Psalter hymnal, 969. Let me just get there. 969. Question 22 asks, How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? How did Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Lord of the universe, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, how did Christ, the Son of God, become man? The Bible-based answer is this. Christ, the Son of God, became man. doesn't say by emptying himself of his deity, but no. He became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Or consider the question and answer on the next page, question and answer 27, speaking of Christ's estate of humiliation. The question is, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? The Bible-based answer is, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Again, why did Christ embrace this uh, our humanity? Why did he become poor? Again, Paul says in our passage for this evening, yet for your sake he became poor, that he might enrich you, dear brother, sister in Christ. Beloved, the picture of the Christ child being laid in a manger is a picture of the deep humiliation of the eternal Son of God. Dear listener, let us praise our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for his willingness to undergo, undergo the humiliation of the incarnation and virgin birth in order to rescue us from our sins. And finally, beloved, rejoice in the great benefits that come to us as a result of our Lord's voluntary poverty in his incarnation. Paul has focused on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ displayed in his incarnation. He's, he's focused on uh, uh, the meaning of uh, his, the, the riches that he left and the poverty that he embraced. What are the benefits that we derive from that? Well, Paul goes on to say, again, to quote from verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that what? So that you, through his poverty might become rich. Oh, Pastor Willauer is preaching a health and wealth gospel. No, I'm not. The riches that he speaks of here is, are the spiritual riches of salvation. Now, we need to remember that Paul is writing to relatively wealthy Corinthians. Unlike the Macedonians, the Corinthians believers were a little more well-to-do. Uh, but... He's obviously not speaking here. Paul is obviously not speaking here of material poverty or material wealth. He's speaking rather of spiritual impoverishment and the spiritual wealth that comes in Christ, the wealth of salvation. Dr. Murray J. Harris, in his commentary, uh, comments on the phrase te ekenu tokea, through his poverty. And Dr. Harris writes that the dative probably means as a consequence of rather than by means of 
In other words, Christians are enriched not exactly or solely by Christ's poverty, by his incarnation, but by his death as the climax of his entire incarnate life of obedient service. What is the point that Dr. Harris is making? Well, he goes on to say, Calvary complements Bethlehem. There was no Bethlehem, no baby born of the Virgin Mary, laid in swaddling cloths, laid in a manger, born in Bethlehem, as predicted by the prophets. If Christ had not been incarnate and born, obviously he could not grow up and become a young man and go to the cross to redeem us from our sins by his atoning, substitutionary atonement. Now, in what ways are we spiritually impoverished? You might not like the language that Paul uses here, that Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That statement implies that you and I are not rich. Whatever your material wealth may be, apart from Christ, you and I are impoverished in the, in the greatest sense of that term. Well, in what ways are we spiritually impoverished? Well, we could spend a long time talking about that, but just giving a brief summary of uh, the Scripture's teaching on our spiritual impoverishment apart from Christ. Remember, brothers and sisters, that in Adam, our original covenant head and representative, in Adam we are fallen and therefore we inherit the guilt and corruption of a sin nature. We are conceived and born in sin. And so we are already conceived and born in a state of spiritual poverty. And thus, by fallen nature, by our fallen nature in Adam, we are enslaved to sin. Apart from Christ as well, apart from Christ as those who are fallen in Adam and enslaved to sin, apart from Christ and his saving grace, we are liable to the curse and condemnation of the law and thus subject to eternal damnation. In what ways does Christ enrich us as believers? In what ways does his impoverishment in taking upon himself our humanity and, and leaving the glories of heaven to live in the, uh, the poverty of an earthly existence? Well, many things could be said in answer to that question, but uh, just to summarize the biblical teaching, by his saving work, by our Lord Jesus Christ's saving work, we, his people, are delivered from the guilt, the power, and the penalty of sin. We are already saved in our justification in the sense that we are saved from the guilt and penalty of our sin. We are being saved with respect to our sanctification, being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. And one day we will be saved in the ultimate consummate sense in our glorification. And the indwelling of the Spirit serves as a seal guaranteeing our inheritance, the inheritance of of eternal salvation in Christ. So we are redeemed from the guilt, from the dominating power, and from the penalty of sin. We are justified by faith and faith alone in Christ and Christ alone. Not only that, we have received adoption as his children. Before Christ saves us, we are, spiritually speaking, we are children of the devil. But in Christ, we are not only new creations, but we also join a new family. The Lord welcomes us as adopted sons and daughters, redeemed by the blood of Christ into his forever family. 
and we are being sanctified. The Lord is at work in us. God is not through with us yet. He who has begun a good work in you, brother, sister in Christ, will carry it through to completion. Our Lord's incarnation is voluntary impoverishment and humiliation in the incarnation. Guarantees that. And not only that, as I mentioned before, we will one day be glorified. We will be raised in glorified souls and bodies, reunited in the resurrection at the final day, to live with our Lord forever, free of pain, free of suffering, free of mortality, in the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. But in the meantime, we are pilgrims on the way. Again, as Paul writes, and what he writes to the Corinthians is true of you, brothers and sisters, here at Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Richer than uh, Elon Musk, richer than uh, the most richest man or woman on the face of the earth. If you are in Christ, doesn't matter what your financial status is. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if he saved you by his grace, you are rich beyond measure. Because Jesus came. He came for you and for me. During this traditional Christmas holiday season, let your heart and your attention be focused anew upon all of the spiritual riches that you have received in Christ. And as you face the new year, with all of its uncertainties, rejoice, rejoice. The Lord is with you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord God and Father in heaven, we thank you for the voluntary humiliation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that at the call of your Father, you willingly and voluntarily left the glories of heaven to take upon yourself our humanity, to live in our midst, to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, and to raise us up from earth unto heaven. We ask, O Lord, that our hearts might be filled with gratitude and that whatever challenges or blessings the new year may bring, that you would be with us through it all. May we walk with confidence as pilgrims on the way, knowing that you are with us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Send afresh your comforter to us, renew and fill us, and may our joy be overflowing. May we know that peace which passes all understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen.